0: Thank you. My wife and I recently watched a really fascinating movie called Deja Vu starring Denzel Washington. In the opening scene, a massive bomb is detonated on a sold out riverboat cruise in the city of New Orleans. And so, throughout the course of the investigation of this apparent terrorist attack, Special Agent Doug Carlin, who's played by Washington, discovers this way to travel back in time and relive the past. And so, because he knows what's going to happen, his mission throughout the entire movie is to keep as many people off that riverboat as possible and keep that bomb from even going off in the first place. You see, Special Agent Carlin knew that since destruction was imminent, he had a really big obligation to keep as many people safe as possible on that day. Now, it would require risk, people would probably reject his warning, many wouldn't listen, many would label him crazy, insane. But you see, since he had foreknowledge into the future, he had this obligation to keep as many people as safe as possible on that day. Now, in one scene, right before the bomb is to detonate, at the very end of the movie, he turns towards this lady that he's fallen in love with, and he asks her a really significant question. He asks her this one question, he says this, he says, what if you had to tell somebody the most important thing in the world, but you knew they would never believe you? Now, I have to tell you that in light of what we're going to be talking about today, I think I know how he felt. Now, here's what I mean. Could it be that time is quickly ticking away and many of us are approaching a day when we are going to step foot into eternity and we are unaware of what we're going to encounter? I mean, could it be that many of us are stepping foot on this boat of eternity and are are completely unaware of what we're going to face Now, in Revelation chapter 16, we're given this picture of what is going to happen, of the afterlife that every person will encounter who rejects Christ in this life. Now, God gives us this image because he does not want us to be caught off guard. You see, here's the thing. Eternity is not something that you and I can afford being wrong about. Now, every person in this room and in the chapel today was created to live forever, and we long for something greater than this life. A guy by the name of Solomon says it like this in an Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes by writing this. He says, he, talking about God, has planted eternity in the human heart. And so that means that every person will live forever, but not everybody, not everybody's going to dwell in the same place. And so the Bible says that at the final judgment, you will either be assigned to live with God in a literal place called heaven, or if you have rejected Christ in this life, you will live in a forever place called hell. Now in two weeks, Ken is going to talk to us about this forever place that we can anticipate as followers of Jesus, a place called heaven. And so my job today is just to pick apart what scripture has to say about this forever place called hell. Now before we go any further, I want to throw a disclaimer out there. If you're here today and you don't yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to know how thrilled we are that you're here. Now, we are going to talk about things that on the surface seem very offensive and intolerant. Believe me, I know. And so I'm giving you an out. You don't have to believe this. But as you leave here today, one question I want you to think about is what if it's true? I mean, what if this isn't made up? I suppose that there was a time in church history when validating the reality of God's wrath did not need to be affirmed. But today is a little bit different. You see, truth that has been traditionally accepted in the church for the past 2,000 years is challenged in many Christian circles. Over three years ago, a really popular pastor wrote a book about how the traditional view of hell really isn't all that biblically accurate. One year ago, a mainline denomination withdrew the song In Christ Alone from their hymnal because there's a line in that song that goes like this. On the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. Their explanation was "Well, it was just too uncomfortable for people to hear and for people to sing. Can I be straight with you for a moment? I don't want to believe this. I mean, of all the things that we're told to believe in the Bible, I wish this thing weren't true. I mean, if I could go through Scripture and delete all the verses that discuss the reality of impending judgment upon those who reject Christ in this life, I would. But you see, to pick and choose what to believe in the Bible is not only foolish, but as we'll see today, it's really unloving. You see, to deny the doctrine of hell would be to call Jesus a liar. He talked about this more than any other topic, more than any other subject throughout the course of his ministry here on earth. Over 13% of his words deal with the eternal punishment of those who reject his message in this life. Over half of his parables discuss the reality of hell. Now you may be sitting there today thinking to yourself, well, that's great, Patrick, but why would a loving God ever subject anybody to a forever hell? Well, to really understand this, we must understand three attributes of who God is, okay? And so God is love, he is holiness, he is holy, and he is wrath. All right, now all three of these attributes, these characteristics of God are interrelated. And so in other words, you can't have one of these in exclusion to the other two. And so here's the thing, if you want a loving God, you must also have an angry God. Now, of all the people in the world, I love my family the most, If my family were to ever be harmed in any way, I would justifiably get angry. Now, my rage wouldn't be in spite of my love for my kids and my wife, but it would be because of it. And there's a big difference, you see. You see, the closer you are to someone, your capacity for anger increases. One author, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, says it like this. Your sense of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. And so when we hear of people who have been murdered, raped, or abused, if you don't get angry, that means that you don't love or care for that person. Rather, the closer you are to someone, the more you love that individual, the greater the chances that you will get angry when harm comes into their life. And you see, in a similar way, because God's righteous anger is just, He unleashes his fury at all things and all people who are destroying the people in the world that he so desperately loves. Now think about it like this. God's wrath is evidence of his love for you. It reveals your value. What do I mean by that? Well, if God didn't love you yet was still true to his character, do you really think that he would enter this dark world and go through a horrific Roman crucifixion so that we might be saved? And so on one side of this spectrum, you have this imaginary God who claims to love us, but does nothing in order to show it. Now, we all know here today and in the chapel that love isn't love unless it costs something and it requires sacrifice, right? And so then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have the God that we serve. And because he loves us, he is angry at the evil and the injustice in the world today. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the punishment that we all deserve because of the sin in our life, and so here's another way of saying it. It is incomplete to discuss the love of God without talking about the holiness of God. And without the wrath of God, there is no holiness or love. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to the very last book in the Bible. Uh, a book called Revelation. We've been in this study for the past several weeks. It's the book right after the last, uh, second to last book called Jude Uh, If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. That is our free gift to you. Take that home. Get acquainted with it. Um, uh, It's on page 875, I believe, in those Bibles right in front of you. Now last week, uh, Cy Huffer did a really, really good job uh, walking us through chapters 12 through 15 in the book of Revelation and unveiling the one who is behind all the evil in our world today. Now if you remember, Cy said that Satan's job description is either to put us in the comfort chair, the comfy chair, or the electric chair. And so in chapter 16, things take an interesting turn as we see the wrath of God unveiled to all people who reject his message in this life. And so we have this this secondary vantage point of the wrath of God being unveiled. And so let's check out verse 1 of chapter 16. Here's what John says. Remember, John is a pastor writing to a group of Christians who were persecuted during the first century. He says, Then I heard a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out on the earth, that phrase is key. You might want to underline that on your app or in your Bible. On the earth, the seven bowls containing God's wrath. Now again, that phrase on the earth is really important in understanding the context of this entire chapter. It's in that phrase on the earth that we see he's talking about people. People will be the recipients of God's wrath here. Now who specifically on the earth is he talking about? Who will receive God's full measure of justice? Well, if we jump five chapters to chapter 21, we're given a more thorough description of who these people are. I want you to take a look at chapter 21, verse 8. John says this, But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And then he says, This is the second death You want to know something? There's not one of us in here or in the chapel today that is not included on this list. You see, hell and eternal punishment is what, we've all, is what we all deserve because we've all rebelled against a holy God. You see, sin leads to death. And that's why being a follower of Jesus is not about how good you are, but it's about how forgiven you are. You see, God is advancing history forward to a day when he will redeem and he will renew all things in a place called the new heaven and the new earth. It's a place where there is no such thing as sin and suffering. And many of us are longing for that day more than ever. Therefore, an integral part of this final and forever redemption is separating out all the evil in the darkness. And so what that means... if Is that if someone has died rejecting the gospel message to be reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ alone. The wrath of God remains upon that individual. Jesus said it. Look at what he says in chapter 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Now what's interesting is that God never intended for his wrath to be for his people, his most prized creatures. Check out verse 2 of Revelation chapter 16. So the first angel left the temple and poured out his bull on the earth. And horrible malignant sores broke out on everyone who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. And While this verse is saying that people who reject Jesus will be sub- subject to forever punishment, it's here we see who uh, we, it's here we see God's ultimate target for His justice. And so, the first point that I want you to write down in your bulletin, you might want to take notes, is this: that God's wrath, God's wrath was originally intended for Satan and his armies. You see, Satan is headed to hell, and he's bringing as many people with him as possible. That's why these people have the mark of the beast. These are men and women who have been held hostage by Satan through the deception of self-sufficiency. And Jesus talked about this. And when discussing the final judgment with his disciples, he makes the point to say that hell was originally meant for Satan and his armies. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 25. And then he will say to those on the left, talking about the final judgment, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepared for Who? prepared for the devil and his angels. Now there's this home in our neighborhood that was a foreclosure at one point in time, and we have since had some neighbors move into that house. And we've connected with them, and we've gotten to know them uh, pretty well. Well, come to find out, when the home was foreclosed, the guy who was living there at the time had lost his house, had lost his job, couldn't afford to make his mortgage payment anymore, and so the bank sent him this notice that he needed to, to move out because they were repossessing the home well whenever he was notified of that he went throughout his entire house and just made a mess of the place he took a hammer to the drywall he ripped up the carpet he punched in windows and doors took spray paint to some of the uh, kitchen appliances sounds kind of fun if you ask me all right well when i was talking with our neighbors about this they said that the pre- i asked them why the previous owner did this to the house and this is what they told me They said he wanted to express his anger in a way that would cause the bank harm and cause them to lose money. Now, the guy did this because he knew the rejection from his home was inevitable. Therefore, his last and final moments in that house was spent leaving his mark upon that place. Now, here's what I know about you and I. When we know that defeat is imminent, we're either going to, A, lose graciously, or we're going to go out with a bang, right? Right? I mean, when I'm watching my favorite basketball team, the Louisville Cardinals, and I know that they might lose, I p- typically turn off the game about five minutes before it ends, and I'm in a bad mood the rest of the day, okay? I mean, I know I need help, okay? My, my counselor says it's therapeutic for me to talk about, all right? Now, make no mistake about it, because Satan has chosen to be a poor loser. He knows the death is imminent for him, therefore he has chosen to wreak havoc on just about everything in sight You see, God has foreclosed his residence here on earth. Therefore, he is bringing about as much destruction as he possibly can while he still has the time. Now, this isn't to say that people aren't responsible for their sin or that because Satan has lured them away from Christ, that they will receive a pass at the final judgment. It's just the opposite, really. And so the next next idea that we pull from Revelation 16 is this, and I want you to write it down. People who refuse to repent will ultimately get what they deserve. People who refuse, refuse to repent will ultimately get what they deserve. Look at verse 4. John says this. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs, and they became blood. And I heard the angel who had authority over all things in the water saying, You are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and of your prophets. You have given them blood to drink. And then he says, it is their just reward. Now that word just is really important in understanding eternal punishment. And while these few verses are specifically talking about non-Christians who were persecuting the church, the application could be made to just about anybody who rejects Jesus in this life. Why? Because you're going to spend eternity with the God that you love most in this life. And that God will either be Jesus, do you know who that other God is? Yourself. You see, nobody gets between you and God more than you do. Now, hang with me for a moment so that I can explain this. When God created the world, it was perfect, it was blemishless. He looked at all the earth, all the animals, all the mountains and galaxies, and he said that it was very good. He then decided to make a creature that would bear his image or he, in whom he would delight in. And so that's where we come into play. He looked at man and woman and said, this is very good. And because God is the creator, because he is the one in charge and has ultimate authority, he established boundaries for the man and the woman so that we would never forget who was in control and who was God. And so his only rule was for Adam and Eve to not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, the whole time Satan is plotting his attack in an effort to screw up God's creation, he went to Adam and Eve, our very first parents, and he tempted them. Now, since destruction is Satan's only desire, he was tempting them to go against what God said was right and true. Adam and Eve's initial response was, well, we can't do that. I mean, we'll, we'll die. God told us no. And so when we look at Satan's response to them, we see what's at the foundation of every sin that we commit in our life. Satan says this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. Talking about that fruit. And you will be like God. Underline that phrase. Knowing both good and evil. Now, sometimes we have a tendency to treat sin kind of like Cousin Eddie at Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, we're aware of it. We occasionally acknowledge it. But we're not really proud of it, right? (laughs) But according to the Bible, it's actually much more serious than that. Whenever we choose to sin, it's really a declaration that we want to be our own God. You see, the base issue is always idolatry. And so you may think that your problem is pornography, but really you're bowing to the idol of pleasure. You may think that your issue is that you worry too much, but really you're bowing to the idol of control. Now, when we sin, which this tendency has been passed down from our original parents, Adam and Eve, and it's a decision that we make every single day, we're really declaring, we're declaring that we want to be our own gods, which is treason against the God who created us. Now, the Bible says that for fairness and justice to be upheld in this world, the death must be the result. You see, death is what we deserve. Hell is what's fair. If you want to talk about something that's not fair, let's look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, to be amazed at what is deserved, hell, we must first stand in awe of what is undeserved. And that's grace. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two uh, primary attributes of hell that I think are important to make clear And so here they are. First one is hell is forever, and hell is intense torment. Revelation 14, 10 through 11 says this. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name Now that phrase, forever and ever, communicates an event that will never end and is continuous. When talking about those who reject Christ, Paul says it like this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, they will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. Now you and I can't even begin to grasp the concept of forever suffering. Here's what I mean. When you and I were created... We have been bound ever since by time and by space. But when God created us in our mother's womb, we have been created to live forever. And so here's the thing. In this life, you get to choose where you want to spend eternity. Now, for just a moment, I want you to think about, as you look back on your life, what is your greatest, what is your greatest moment of suffering? What is your greatest season of disappointment? Or maybe it was when you went through really bad depression Perhaps it's when you were abused as a child. Maybe it was a divorce or the death of a loved one. Now, no matter who you are or where you're at with the Lord, suffering always points to eternity in some way. Now, so for, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, suffering makes us long and thirst and desire for a day that is quickly approaching when God will renew and redeem all things. You see, as Christians, we are approaching a day when sin and suffering and grief and pain will be no more. You see, suffering for us points to eternal hope. But for those who reject Christ in this life, the suffering that maybe came to mind a moment ago is only a microcosm of what's going to happen for all of eternity. Only hell will be forever, and it'll be far worse. In hell, there's no such thing as comfort. There's no distraction. You see, in hell, there's no such thing as water to quench you, friendships to comfort you, money to sustain you, a job to define you, clothing to protect you. In other parts of the Bible, we're given snapshots of what hell will be like. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses the imagery of a fiery furnace weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke 16, it's talked about as the exclusion of God's presence and the person is in anguish and flames, he says. Revelation 2 portrays hell as a second death. Isaiah 66 says it's a place where the worm won't die. Now what disturbs me more than the reality of hell itself is the fact that sometimes I live like I don't really believe it's true. On, um, on Tuesday of this past week, I, I came home and at the end of a long work day, and I was just frustrated by something. My wife could tell that something was going on, but I just kind of dismissed it. I didn't really think much of it. I woke up the next morning, and it hit me. I realized how lightly I had been approaching this message. I mean, when was the last time I allowed the weight of what we're talking about to bring me to tears? I mean, we're talking about real people. The live real lives that we interact with every single day. And the moment some of these people die, they will be in a forever place called hell and there's no turning back. Now, our culture loves to scoff at this idea and, and simply reduce hell down to a party. Uh, One of ACDC's most famous songs is called Highway to Hell. Many of us know that song. And a part of that song goes like this, don't worry, I'm not, sigh, I won't sing it for you, okay? (laughs) I don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing that I'd rather do, going down party time. My friends are going to be there too, I'm on the highway to hell. It's not going to be a party. You won't have friends there. There's nothing glamorous about it. And so this means that we have to approach people in our life with love and with urgency. Things can't stay the same. They can't stay the way they are. Well, Jesus, he finally speaks in the midst of all these bowls of wrath being poured out. Look at verse 15. He says, look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all of those who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so that they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Now let's be honest, it seems a little bit odd that Jesus would say that we're blessed if we keep our clothing ready. Now in the Old Testament, nakedness was always seen as a symbol of judgment. Here's why. Because before the throne of God, you were fully exposed. You can't hide anything. You see, a day is coming when every thought, motivation, action, decision, or choice that we've made will be brought to life. And so that's why the New Testament repeatedly tells us that our only hope is to clothe ourselves with Christ. You see, because Jesus alone covers over our sin and our shame. Well, the last bowl of God's wrath is about to be poured out. Skip to verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne in the temple, saying, It is finished. Now, here we see the culmination of evil being dealt with. At that point, John heard the voice of God declare, it is finished. And from this point on, all evil and darkness is something of the past. Now, what's interesting is that John records this phrase in another one of his books. We see this phrase happen, we see this phrase written in his biography on the life of Jesus. And in chapter 19 in the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus is hanging upon the cross and he knows that death is just a matter of moments away. And so as he's hanging there about to breathe his last, Jesus spouts off the phrase, it is finished. Now you see, when Jesus said that, he was accomplishing something that we can never attain. Jesus lived this life that we can never live. He absorbed the punishment that we can never pay ourselves. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was declaring that all of humanity now had a way out because of the sin in their life and the hell that they are headed towards I guess you could say that since the cross 2,000 years ago, the only way to hell is over Jesus' literal dead body. And so the last thing I want you to write down is this, that escaping God's wrath only happens, only happens through Jesus. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It's about grace, God's unmerited favor when consequences are deserved And so when you receive Christ, you are no longer subjected to the death penalty. It's a free gift and it's not about what you bring to the table, okay? I mean, sometimes we falsely believe that, you know, the answer to the sin in our life is just to serve others more or to be more generous or to be more kind. But let me just tell you that your good will never outweigh your bad when it comes to the scales of God's wrath. It's only by what Jesus has done can you escape God's judgment. You see, a weak view of hell leads to a pathetic view of the cross. A couple years ago, I got pulled over by a police officer. Uh, Shocking, I know. Uh, I was driving down a road where the speed limit should be much higher than it really is. I... um, Made the turn, a police officer was sitting right in the driveway clocking as people drove by. I slammed on my brakes, you've done that before. Uh, I looked in my rear view mirror as I passed him, but it was too late. He pulled out of that driveway, flipped on his lights, and I pulled over to the side of the road. And I was just sick to my stomach. You know that feeling probably. Now luckily, I married somebody who is very well acquainted in situations like this. And so she's taught me really well what to do and what to say. (laughs) It's just the truth, okay? Now, I never want to take advantage of being a pastor, but if the opportunity presents itself, I'm all in. I mean, especially if it would keep me from having to go home later that day and explain to my wife what really happened. And so when God opens a door, he expects you to walk through it, right? I mean, we've kind of learned that in this series. And so the officer asked me a question. When he got up to my window, he said, son, where were you headed in such a hurry? So I well, actually have a pastor in the area, and I was just going over my sermon. I'm actually preaching tonight, and uh, I just wasn't aware of how fast I was going, so You're going to have to forgive me. I got just a warning that day. <laughs> he was a good Christian, all right? <laughs> <laughs> now that's mercy, all right? Kindness in a desperate, dire situation. But say the officer wanted to exercise grace that day, things would have gone a little differently. He would have come up to my window and said, look, son, you were going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. I've got no choice but to give you a ticket. He would have gone back to his police cruiser, filled out that form, come back to my car, given me that ticket and said, look, it's going to cost you about $200 at a local courthouse. But you know what? I'm going to pay for that myself. Here's two $100 bills. This should cover the cost for your speeding ticket. Now that's grace. That's also unbelievable, all right? (laughs) But you see, it's totally undeserved, yet it doesn't diminish the offense. If anything, the consequences magnify the beauty of what is being given, and that's grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says it like this, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's eyes by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. That word done is key, because grace is spelled D-O-N-E. Religion says do more, but Jesus says it's already done. One of my pastors growing up used to say this, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. And so if that's true, what does that mean for us? Well, that means that we're called to enjoy our salvation, and we're to join God And taking redemptive action in this world. I mean, if we have been rescued from a real eternal hell, the most unloving thing that we could do is to not plead for others to turn towards their only way out, which is by trusting Jesus. Now, it's one thing to be sobered by the reality of hell and impending judgment, but it's another to allow the existence of it to motivate us to be on mission with God, rescuing others. And so as we wrap things up today, my one simple question for you is this. Who is close to you but far from God? Who is close to you but far from God? Is this a spouse? Is this a child? Maybe a neighbor, a coworker, Your bank teller? Maybe a waitress at a restaurant that you frequent? You see, in just over a month, we're having a baptism weekend on the weekend of December 20th and 21st. Todd mentioned it a moment ago. Now, this will be a weekend when many will give their lives to Jesus, will come forward and will be baptized into Him that day. Many that will choose to be baptized that day have maybe made the decision to follow Jesus in the past, but have just never followed through with that step. And this is, let me just encourage you that this is a perfect opportunity for you to pray towards someone in your life taking that significant step. And I just want you to know that the date is set, plans are being made. People are praying, the band will be great that weekend, worship will be awesome, the building will be ready. I'm confident that heaven is going to get a little bit bigger on that weekend, but the only thing, the only thing that is missing and the only thing that matters is the answer to this question. What if you had to tell this person the most important thing in the world and you knew they would believe you? Well, it would change everything, right? It would probably give you the confidence to say what you need to say and do what you need to do. Now, you notice that we're uh, a little bit early here decorating for Christmas as you walked in here and walked in the chapel. Um, it's like Martha Stewart's been here this week. That's what it looks like. And so he, here, here's what we're going to do. And, and I want, I want everybody to participate in this. And so for that to happen, I'm just going to talk to two groups of people in here. First of all, I know that there are many of us in here who don't, who don't yet have that relationship with Jesus. In just a moment, as the band sings some songs, we're going to end with two songs. Would you have the courage to maybe get up out of your row and go over to these white tables, take one of these ornaments, and with a Sharpie that's over there, just write your name on the back. I want you to know that, that you're not a project of ours, but you're an individual who matters to God and you really matter to this church. And if you are without Christ right now, writing your name on the back of that ornament, will help us uh, pray for you. It will maybe hold us accountable to, to listen to you and to love you better like Jesus would want us to love you. And so if you're without Christ, consider writing your name. Maybe that's just a practical next step that you can take as a way of saying, God, I'm open to knowing more about you. Now the second group of us in here, we have people in our life. The answer to this question, we have people in our life who are far from God. And so who is that name that comes to mind? I want you to write their name on the back of these ornaments and I want you to hang it on the greenery. And this is, this is a step of accountability because we're going to pray for these people. And it's going to be a commitment for you to invest into this person each and every week you come in here. That's going to be a reminder for you that that individual needs to be invested in and that that person matters to God. And so as we sing this song in just a moment, we're going to stand up and sing... And you just make your way over these tables in the chapel, that's the case as well. You make your way over the tables, you get that sharpie and you write the name of either either your own name or someone in your life who is far from God. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna stand up and then uh, you do that as we sing these last two worship songs. Let's pray. Father, I, I love you so much and God, truthfully, there are things in your word that I don't really understand, I don't get. But God, that's okay because I'm, I'm created and you're the creator. You're sovereign, I'm not. Your ways are not my ways, and God, I'm thankful for that. And so, God, this message is pretty heavy, and I know that, that it weighs pretty heavily upon a lot of us in here, but, but God, would you, would you allow the weight to invest into those, cause us to invest into those who are maybe far from you, Lord? Because, God, when we look at how if we look at it through the right lens, it'll make us appreciate the cross all the more because hell is what we deserved, Yet you have provided us a way out. And I'm thankful for that. May my life reflect that gratitude that I feel. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and gather. Amen. We're gonna sing, so you go ahead and make your way towards the tables as you feel ready.